Hey, everybody. Hello, everybody. Well, the sun has come out. It is. We're so bright. Oh, don't. Now we're normal. Now we're normal. <laughs> well, kind of. You know, yeah. So, Patty, how are you today on I'm this good. Monday? I'm good. Good. I'm good. Easter week. Holy week, yes. You got it. Very, very cool. And for those of you who were at church yesterday, you probably saw it was pretty much filled Palm Sunday pre-COVID. Yeah. It was really And Sunday school class was, was a lot of people cool. there in person. So, so it was great. It was great. It was really, great. really I expect great. Easter will be the same. I think people are... I do too. I think people are back. Yes. And if they don't come for Easter, they're not going to come for much. That's right. We're so. going to we're gonna do this Easter what um, Charles Stokes used to say happened. We're going to go to the 5.30 on Saturday and then after it, they put Jesus back in the tomb, right, right for Sunday morning. So uh, we've Charles never done joke. that. No, we've we never have. Never so we thought we would do that this year, and uh, just be kind of—I don't know—maybe we just would. Maybe give up a parking spot for somebody, somebody else on, on Sunday morning. So uh, I will tell you guys: if you were not there in person yesterday, that parking lot was absolutely full. All the new spots that they made were full. It was every spot was full. So I imagine Easter Sunday, we're, we're just so used to now getting to like park the car and only come a half of a parking lot in, but those days are gone yeah. and that's, that's a, good it's thing. a good thing. It's, it's a good, good thing. It's a good, good problem to have. And we're sure glad to have be, everybody um, back and lots of excitement. Probably and, next week. I would bet they will. I guess. I don't know. Well, we'll see. I we'll mean, see. I, I, I really don't know. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not involved in anything like that. It's all I can do to keep my stuff going. <laughs> So, um, wow. Okay. So, let's see. Today, we're going to be back in Isaiah. We're going to go through, we're going to get in the helicopter and get go through quite a few chapters again and dip down once in a while to uh, appreciate a closer look at the landscape, but but Oh, that whole forward. helicopter thing. Yeah, Man. the whole, yeah, the whole oh. helicopter thing. Exactly. Man. So, yeah. So, anyway... Hmm. Well, what I'm else feel- is new? <laughs> I have a new iPad today. He does. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, I got a new iPad. Today. I had it. I had it. My other one had. I've been using it for a long time, and I decided it was just getting slower and slower, and I was more more frustrated with it. And um, this one is snappy. Yeah, he's so sweet. He's like truly the best husband. He did this whole little honey. I, I really think I need a new iPad. What do you think? As if I was going to say no. And, and I had $400 of Amazon credit to put toward it. That's because he buys even his floss and deodorant on Amazon, and we get all those points. Get those Amazon <laughs> points, baby. <laughs> but anyway, it's new. Yeah. It's, it, it's yeah. beautiful. Because you had a very old, old one, and you use it so much. Yeah. So. This, is, this is good. So anyway, that's new. Otherwise, not much is new. Okay, honey, pray, of... pray us into Holy Week Monday. Okay, let us pray. Gracious Lord, it is Holy Week. And um, we're here on Monday. This is the day that Jesus turns the tables over. This is the day that Jesus curses the fig tree, which is a little bit weird to us, I think, in 2022. But the fig tree is a, um, a symbol of the temple. And uh, the temple is corrupt. And... Uh, Jesus brings God's judgment down on the priests and on the temple. And we just pray that you will be with us today as you always are. And we just give voice to that as we 
return to the book of Isaiah. We're going to uh, gonna make our way through a lot of Isaiah again this week, like we did last week, and we just pray that you will help us still feel like we're getting a, a grounding in Isaiah as, as we move forward. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to go across the table All right. here. And, um, hey, so hey. Who, who is the smart person, and I do mean that really smart person, that ever figured out that the fig tree was the temple? Because it showed up that way on coins and other things like that in, okay. in, in imagery. Most of the Jewish imagery... It's never images of people because, or animals, really, because of the um, uh, idols. They don't even use a lot of imagery. But there were coins, for example, minted um, that um, by the Jews that had fig trees, and and it just came to be a symbol of the temple. That's about, you know, you've exhausted my my knowledge of the fig tree. And the temple, like I say all the time, the only figs I like are the ones that are wrapped inside that Newton crust. So, here's where we are. Last week we we got through Isaiah 22, and we we looked at a lot of Israel's neighbors, right? And so we saw that all of these na- not after God had pronounced judgment upon Israel and God's people for abandoning God, so God went from neighbor to neighbor to neighbor to neighbor because it is a world in rebellion. That's the story of the Garden of Eden, right? Um, The story of sin and rebellion against God is not a story exclusive to the Jews, to Abraham's people, to um, Christians. It is a worldwide problem. It is a worldwide problem that infects everybody everywhere and leads them to make terrible decisions um, and be blind to injustice and oppression and violence and and um, so it, it's it's not surprising that God pronounces judgment upon these neighbors that they too are going to reap the consequences of the choices that they have made right um, so we're going to pick up at chapter 23 which is a prophecy against Tyre T-Y-R-E. Now, Tyre is a city. We're not going to read this this particular um, uh, prophecy. It's just like the others. It's special words of judgment and condemnation on Tyre. But I do want you to see where it is. We're going to talk about it for a moment. Um, Let's see. I better use the little mouse here to do this. Okay. So there's the big overview map, right? So with the uh, red arrows, as I said last week, that illustrate that that region of Palestine, of Israel, is a region that is like a crossroads because to the east of the Jordan River is just sand and dirt and wilderness. And um, so these great empires get at each other through Israel. And that's why Israel's always getting pushed on, always getting pushed on. They can't ever really just sort of drop to the sidelines and chill out and watch what happens. They always end up getting involved in it um, as the Assyrians are trying to get to Egypt or the Babylonians are trying to get at the Egyptians. Israel sits there right between them. 
So this is the old map of the two kingdoms that I've been using um, for a while in this class. And I put a big red arrow on it this week up at the top, pointing to the area of Tyre and Sidon. These are two coastal cities. Um, they are not part of Israel. They are the part. They are some of the pagan neighbors, but they are particularly notable because one of the one of the fascinating personages in the Old Testament comes from that area, and that is Jezebel. Jezebel, she is she is from that area. She Jezebel is um, not an Israelite, and um, of course. It's just fascinating to read the accounts of Jezebel and, and Ahab in the, in the book of Kings. So anyway, that is, that, that's the, so chapter 23 is the condemnation on, on Tyre. And I do, I do have two, two Bibles open here just so I can have one that gives me a little bit more of an overview of what we're doing. But the iPad so I can dive down and actually see what I'm supposed to read. So chapter 24, now it's like we drop way back in view. It's not Israel that's in view. It's not Israel's neighbors that, it's in, that are on view. It's like the whole earth. This is sort of like Genesis 6, where God surveys the landscape, right, of the earth and sees nothing but evil, evil, evil everywhere. Um. I get the same sense from Isaiah 24. And that the earth that and the peoples that populate the earth are going to reap the consequences of their actions, of their embrace of, of um, hatred and envy and pride and violence and gossip and all the rest of it. That, that they're going to reap the consequences of that, and the earth is going to be devastated. So when you read chapter 24, if you want to do it after class today, you can, you can, you'll just, it's just all over the place. That's what it is. It is this condemnation of the earth. Now, if you were a naive Old Testament Bible reader, you might look at Isaiah 24 and conclude, well, gosh, I guess God's going to wipe everything out. But remember last week when we read from the book of Hosea, Right, and God is talking about God's people who certainly deserve for God to carry out their utter destruction. But almost on a dime, God changes and says, No, I'm going to allure her and bring her out to the wilderness, and we're going to start over like young lovers and that whole stuff in Isaiah and Hosea, too. The, the answer here is, is not to think that, one, the earth's inhabitants don't deserve, you know, what they are bringing upon themselves. And also, don't imagine that God doesn't care, but also don't imagine that God is waiting to smite everyone and turn the whole earth into a crisp. Because... God's ultimate purpose is what? The reconciliation of humanity to God and the renewal of the earth and the restoration of the earth, of creation. That's why the stones and the hills and the trees, they all sing, you know, when, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. That's why. 
because Jesus is, is the Savior, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Reconciler. And God is so determined to rescue us from ourselves. That's the phrase to get. There's not aliens involved here. God, you know, from outer space. God is rescuing the earth and its inhabitants from ourselves. That he will allow even the death of his own only begotten son. It's just, it, it's a... It's something that you could never figure out on your own. You could sit there for a million years and you would never come up with this. Who would? That the creator of the cosmos would give up the life of his only begotten son so that humanity in all of its sin and darkness and violence, which we now see displayed on the TV, every day in horror. Who could imagine that, that that's the God we're called to worship? So it is in many ways a uniquely Christian claim. I don't know of any other religion that makes, that makes such a claim. Um, certainly Islam does not. Um, the Jews do not. They might be awaiting the Messiah, but they would never see the Messiah as God himself. So, um, yeah, so that is the way to understand a, a chapter like 24, because the, the, the prophets often bring these messages of judgment, which are right and proper, unless you're blind to the sin in this world. And the thing, terrible things we do to one another, unless unless you're blind to that, you know the truth of, of sin and that we do reap the consequences of our actions. But God always finishes with these words of promise and hope. As we're about to see, because it's so fascinating, that chapter 24, which is about the devastation of the earth, is followed by chapter 25, which is about praising God, and chapter 26, which is a song of praise. And we're going we're gonna to read chapter 26, just so we can, there's something fascinating here that I didn't know was there until I, I, I was preparing for today. So let me ask Patty if she has anything she'd like to talk about here, or anybody else out there. Just give me a clue um, in the comment bar comment section on Facebook and I'll I'll do it. No comments, honey. Right no now. comments. But I will How about I'm you from Patty? No, I'm I'm good. You're good. I okay. Am very good. Thank you. Okay, so look at look at chapter twenty six. Twenty six? Yeah we're that was a quick jump. <laughs> yeah. Twenty two is the devastation of Tyre. Yes. Twenty three is what? 23 is a devastation of Tyre. 24 is a devastation of the earth. 25 is a song of praise. 26 is a song of praise. And I, I, I want to use chapter 26. So, Isaiah chapter 26. That's where we are. That's where we're going to do some reading here, okay? Yes, sir. Cool. 
So in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah, the day of restoration, you see? Because there's always this expectation. It, it's dark, 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 and then there's the light, the light of restoration, that in the end is the light of Christ. Chapter, book, chapter 26. We have a strong city. God's make salvation, its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. Because, my friends, that is what God wants from us. That we would keep faith with God, that we would put our faith in God, that we wouldn't be faithless, that we would trust God. All through here, the problem that, that the Israelites have is that they want to live their lives and manage their, what are we going to call them, their national affairs, their tribal affairs, in the ways of the world. They're going to cut, cut, cut treaties with the Assyrians and all this and that, to try to hold off the Egyptians. And, they're going to, and God says, no. You are to come to me. You are to be true to me. You are to put your faith in me. It is like that Israelite king who fell through the um, ceiling and started to send his messengers to go appeal to pagan gods on his behalf. And it's this, and you could just, you could just feel, like, I don't know, you could just feel God weeping over that. They don't go to God. they don't go to Yahweh. They don't go to the God who rescued them from Egypt and has brought them through all this. No, they go to some stupid, meaningless, non-existent figment of their own imagination called Baal, or pick some others, Zeus or Jupiter or Diana or Mercury or whomever. The only God is the one true God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. So, verse um, 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you, the you being God. Trust in Yahweh forever, for Yahweh, Yahweh himself is what? The rock eternal, right? The rock of ages. He humbles those who dwell on high. And he lays those big lofty cities low. Humans very easily gravitate toward um, pride. We just watched, what did we watch, Patty? We watched this series dropout on Hulu yes. about Elizabeth Holmes from the whole Theranos scandal. You probably know at least a bit about what I'm talking about and how she was able to get people ranging from George Schultz to Henry Kissinger on her board when the whole gigantic thing is a fraud. It's a fraud. From the beginning, it was a fraud. And you ask yourself, well, how does she do that? And I thought the show did a good job of depicting this sense that very successful, accomplished people can have where they they end up with a sense of infallibility. They're such an excellent judge of character. They just can't get it wrong. And but then they, they're, when they, it's right in their face, their pride 
will not let them admit it. Yes, and so throughout Scripture from beginning to end, a theme is the bringing down of the lofty and the elite and the rich and all those who think that they could live their lives because they've been successful, independent of God. They don't need God for anything. They got a nice big fat 401k. What do they need God for? Beginning to end, Genesis to um, to Revelation. So verse five, he humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of whom? Oppressed. The oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. Those people who were trampled as the rich folks made their way to the top. And you're going to say to me, well, people can get wealthy these days without trampling poor people at their feet. I'm going to agree with you, uh, you know. But we're an awfully wealthy country, and we have not figured out, and I won't get into the reasons that I might think why, of even of even educating all the children in the country well. We haven't figured out how to do that. Instead, we have whole generations, whole cohorts of children that are just just left behind, just left in the dust. So anyway. Verse seven, the path of the righteous is level. Okay? You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. If you live a life doing right, that is, that's, that's the smooth, level path. That is the path God wants you to walk. Verse 8, Yes, Yahweh, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Because we ourselves are not, within ourselves, proper arbiters of right and wrong. It's that simple. I mentioned my class yesterday morning, the... the verse at the end of the book of Judges. I come, it's one of those touchstones for me because it's just so, just, just so true. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You're not going to be further from God than that statement. We aren't to do what's right in our eyes. We're to learn what is right in God's eyes and then do it. Verse 10, but when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and do not regard the majesty of Yahweh. Yahweh, your hand is lifted high, but they don't see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Yahweh, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. That's a very countercultural statement. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. 
Yahweh our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. Those lords would be like the king of Syria or the king of the Babylonia or whatever kings there might be, right? Verse 14, they're now dead. These other lords, they don't live anymore. Their spirits don't rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. <laughs> As in that poem, Ozymandias again. I promise I'm not going to bring it up again. Maybe. Verse, <laughs> verse 15. You have enlarged the nation, Yahweh. You have enlarged the nation. You've made, we have grown. Remember, God promised Abraham descendants more numerous than the stars. You have enlarged the nation. You have grown the nation. You have gained glory for yourself, God. You have extended all the borders of the land. Yahweh, they come to you in their distress when you discipline them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a pregnant woman about to give birth rise and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Yahweh. We were with child. We writhed in labor. We gave birth to wind. wind. What does that mean? It means that pain was unproductive. Okay. Their work was unproductive. We have not brought salvation to the earth. And the people of the world have not come to life. Why is that? There's a lesson right now for people today. Because we don't have the power to do that. We just don't. We can delude ourselves into thinking that we do have the power to, to, to you know fix all the woes and tears and misery and, and, and bring forth life to all, but we don't. We live short lives, 70, 80, 90 years, then we're gone. No doctor I have is going to make me um, immortal. It's, we, just, we just don't have that power. I and mean, We could have done so much more than we have. You know, this is a point I try to make sometimes. I don't know if I'm the only person that really connects with this, but human history is maybe five, 6,000 years old when civilizations really started cooking. What if from the beginning we had used all our energy and all the human intellect that we had and all of the resources we had to bring about peace, to solve problems, to learn about the world we live in, to, to, um, to heal diseases, but we didn't. Instead, we spent most of the last five or 6,000 years trying to kill each other. And so, and consequently, we're not even to the 100th anniversary of penicillin yet, which is just <laughs> mind-blowing to me. Why is that? I can't think of any good reason why that is, except humanity spent too much of our resources. How many, how many cures for cancer might have died on the fields of battle in World War One and World War Two? How many great composers and artists perished in those battlefields? That's what sin does. That's what sin is. 
So they don't give birth here in this metaphor. They don't give birth to a child. They give birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. And the people of the earth have not come to life. But, and here's fascinating verse 19. But your dead will live, Yahweh. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust, which means those who have died, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. And what is that? What is verse 19 except a statement about resurrection? what it is oh definitely right resurrection of the body no less their bodies will rise that's what it is um it could point to the resurrection of israel and of course as you would think because you know what their bodies will rise it also points to the resurrection of the body the resurrection of the dead. I was asked maybe in one of the classes last week, maybe in my Tuesday class, about, you know, how did this belief in the resurrection of the body come to be? And so I referred to a few places, the most notable ones, the ones that I was most familiar with in the Old Testament. But this one is really good, and I I I don't think I was even aware of it. And it's written when? This is in the first section of Isaiah, which means Nearly every scholar on the face of the earth who studies Isaiah would agree that this was written 700 years before Jesus. And here's this little hint, this signpost, that indeed God will overcome even death and bodies will rise. Why? Why would bodies rise? To enjoy a earth that is renewed and restored. Why does Jesus show his disciples he can eat fish? Because he wants them to grasp that it, he's resurrected, yes, but he's flesh and bones. He's not a ghost. He benefits from gravity. <laughs> Just take, right? He, he, he eats the fish. He's, um, in John 21, he's going to cook breakfast for everybody. You know? Yes. Yes, the, the, the biblical story is not about us escaping this world and head, heading off to distant spiritual clouds somewhere. No, no. It is about the renewal and restoration of this world and our resurrection so that we can enjoy this renewed and restored world where things are finally put right not swept away, put right, put right. So it's a big, it is right. I mean, it's where you take the biblical story from Genesis to Revelation again. It's where, where the book of Revelation ends. The book of Revelation at the end quotes from the scroll of Isaiah because we're going to come, I don't know when, because it's like I, chapter 65, we're going we're gonna to come to the new heavens and the new earth passage. Where? In the scroll of Isaiah. You see? 
and it had been there all that time, and it is there still. And the writer of Revelation calls up that phrase and that passage to remind us what God's purpose is in all this. He didn't, he didn't give his only begotten son so the earth would be wiped out and we would all be floating away into the cloud somewhere. No. He gave his only son so that this earth would be renewed and restored. It's why the hills sing and the mountains sing and the trees sing and the stones sing and the rocks sing and the rest of it that you encounter. You know, a little bit in the Gospels and more in the Psalms. Um, right there, Josie uh -huh. said that she has a footnote referencing Ezekiel 37. There you go. About the bones, the dry bones. <laughs> right, the foot bone's connected to the ankle bone and the ankle bone's connected to the... Yeah, exactly. Um, and so there's a vision of the dry bones coming together, okay? And it's certainly a, a vision of the restoration of Israel. But how... Uh, but of course... It's a signpost and, and helps to account for the rise in the Jewish belief in Jesus' day that almost all Jews held to that when God put things right, it would be around the resurrection of the dead. The grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa would be physically resurrected to participate in that and enjoy it. You know? Jesus ate broiled fish so that they could see that he wasn't a ghost. But also, broiled fish can be really good. The, the predominant fish in the Sea of Galilee is tilapia. I'm guessing they knew how to make really tasty tilapia yes. back then, right? It was a principal source of protein for them. So, you know. Um, maybe pistachio crusted tilapia. <laughs> maybe if they had pistachios. So, it, um, it, you know what they probably did with a lot of it? They, prob they probably used olive oil to baste it, right? Mm -hmm. And broil it in olive oil and with stuff. Some sea salt. Maybe, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm thinking it's good. If you go back to the book of Genesis and just reread chapters 1 and 2. Don't go into chapter 3 where it all goes wrong. Just reread Genesis 1 and 2 and see what God hoped for these humans when he gave them a beautiful place to live and to work together and to be fruitful and to multiply with the trees and the garden and the animals and all the rest of it. And that is that is where God is taking us. Not just merely back to the beginning, to a, a new and, and better beginning. Think about it that way. So anyway, okay. So that's a big verse. So like if you want to circle, if you're a, if you're a circular of verses, um, the blood here's Mona's the blood and bodies of the innocent who've been slaughtered by the oppressive powers will no longer be hidden, but will be brought against, brought forth to testify against their murderers, so that God may judge and avenge their deaths. Okay, you know what that is, Mona. That that's virtually the words that come out of the mouth of old man Maccabee 
when the Maccabees revolt, lead the, is, is, the Jews in revolt in like 165 AD, BC against uh, the um, Seleucids. <sighs> Old man Maccabee is killed. And he's going about to be executed. And he says, you know, he has this little speech where he's talking about he is confident that God is going to resurrect him so that he can participate in making these people account for what they did. You know, the the great the great temperate to this Mona is God's grace and mercy. You see, nobody puts them themselves outside God's grace. We're all burdened by sin. We're all burdened by sin. Um, but I I believe there will be many who will shake their fist at God all the way to the end. And I think Mr. Vladimir Putin is one of them. That was a long note to type there, Mona. That was. Would have taken me a half hour. Maybe she has some way that she <laughs> cut and pasted it or Ma something. Could be. I'd have to resort to something like that. Me too. <laughs> or there'd be lots of mistakes. So, so, so circle verse 19. That's just such such a wow. That is just wild that, it, that it's sitting there. And I didn't even really know it was there. So, verse 20. Go, my people. Enter your rooms, shut the doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath is passed by. See, Yahweh is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. To get to Mona's study Bible, the, the note that she, that she put there in the comment section. Um... It is, it is a picture, one of many pictures, of a world put right. And um, reminds us that we can all come up with long lists of wrongs that people need to be held accountable for. That's what's so cool about the book of Revelation. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 20, the first book that's opened is the book of merit, in which everybody's deeds are recorded, you see. The book of merit. Um, only after the book of merit is opened is the book of life opened in which the names are recorded of those who will enter into eternity with God. And I think that is because people, we, God has made us in such a way that we, we, that we do desire for wrongs to be accounted for. Now, it can turn into just a cry for vengeance, okay? And, and vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is God's. And when Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times do I forgive my brother? Jesus basically says 490 times. So Jesus really sweeps vengeance, any notion of vengeance off the table. But it's not, it's not just if wrongs go 
unaccounted for, as if they didn't matter. Right? And we're blessed that who that the judge who who sorts all this out is not you and me. That we're blessed that the judge who sorts all this out is Jesus. It's God who does this. So which is really a good thing because we would just get it wrong, right? We we would never put ourselves in the position of being the one who is needing to be judged, or most of us wouldn't. Okay, so anything else there, Patty? Anybody? Nope. Um, no, we, we're good. See, we got we took the helicopter down to the ground, landed it. Isaiah twenty six, and and mind verse nineteen. Okay, so um, chapter twenty seven is about the deliverance of Israel. It's another chapter with lots of portraits about the deliverance of Israel. The day when, when what? What's the right words to use to think about this? When God puts things right. When God's put things right and Israel is is delivered. Um, just, just for a second, look at verse 2. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. Because we've, we've done some vineyard stuff already back in Isaiah 5. The vineyard is Israel. And a fruitful vineyard is an Israel that is living faithfully with God, with God and producing good, ripe fruit, not lying barren on the ground. I, Yahweh, watch over this vineyard. I water it continually. Continually, I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. Okay, so chapter 27, that's what it is. When we come to chapter 28, it's pretty fascinating too because this is a, a woe, you know, <laughs> the Bible has these things. Jesus uses this construction. He'll say, woe. To those, to thus and so, woe to thus and so, woe to thus and so. There's a famous passage, I think it's in Matthew, where there's all these woes listed one after another. And sometimes tra translators do something else with, with leaving it other than leaving it W-O-E, but I think they should leave it W-O-E. Woe to those, woe to those, woe to those who, you know, abandon God. And here in 28, these woes, are to the leaders of the Israelites. The leaders of Ephraim, a name standing in for the northern kingdom. The leaders of Judah, because they have led the people astray. God looks... This is a, It doesn't take away the guilt of the average person. But God is smart. And God realizes, God knows... That it is the leaders who are, who carry on, who are given the joyful burden of leading the people toward God. And as Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others write about, they are to be good shepherds. Shepherds is a common way in the ancient Near East of speaking of leaders. And, and they are to be good leaders looking over the sheep of in their flock. Um, but the leaders of the kingdoms often usually did not. Did not. 
And the same thing is true in Jesus' day. So in John 10, how does he describe himself? I am the good shepherd. You know, we, we sort of make that only kind of pastoral and little little sheep dancing around because most Christians don't know deeply enough the rich metaphors about the bad shepherds of Israel. And God's condemnation of those shepherds and in the book of Ezekiel saying, I, I will be the shepherd of Israel. And that comes to fruition with with Jesus. So yeah, I was wondering if you could maybe just make one or two sentence statement there. I think there are people today that were not here last week uh -huh. and may be confused why you're going through this so fast. Okay, so here's the deal. From about Isaiah 14 to 36 chapters is a very repetitive repet there one chap they're just the chapters are so repetitive. Judgment on Egypt, judgment on Tyre, judgment on Moab, judgment on Edom. And it's the kind of thing that makes people quit reading their Bibles. It's, it's just that kind of stretch. So we could do it, but I personally don't think we would get very much, very much out of it. And I think we would lose a lot of people along the way. And so I, I thought that since um, I agreed to take on Isaiah, that this was a this was a better way to do it. So that we could kind of go through and see on a high level what some of these chapters are and then dive down at certain places in order to read it and and talk about it in some detail. And I used last week an example of a volume I have on my shelf out of the Interpretation Bible Study Series, which is, you know, it, it what it does is divide a Isaiah into 10 units. And there is a unit... Um, Unit 1 is Isaiah 1, Unit 2 is Isaiah 5, Unit 6, 3 is Unit 6, is Isaiah 6, Unit 4 is Isaiah 7, and then it skips all the way forward to what? Isaiah 36. And it just, they just don't even talk about the in-between because they're so repetitive. That's the king. That, that's the key. So I'm trying to, to give you the spirit of it, but not reading through every verse and losing, ending up at chapter 36 finally, in a month or two from now with <laughs> with one person left and it might not even be patty <laughs> so that's my thinking and you know so i invite you what is that what is what i'm saying i invite you during the week to go through and if you want to to sit down and read these i think you will get more out of each of these chapters if you want to dive into them by going through this little bit of a high level helicopter thing with then diving down You'll, you'll have a sense of what is going on in these very repetitive pieces of the scroll. How's that, Patty? Does that, that make sense? Excellent, yep. Okay, so there we go. I just I just knew there were some people. Yeah, and be, because really in this these classes, we, you know, we, we pretty much start at the beginning, read every verse to the end. We, we did something a little similar in Exodus when we read... Um, all of the instructions for building the tabernacle. 
And when we came to the exactly the same repetition of those, except in the past tense of what they had built, we skip some of that. Again, because you're just leaving people, I just think you're leaving people in the dust. It reminds you that in the pages of Scripture, all 66 books, it's all inspired by God. It is all God-breathed. But it's not all equally helpful. It's just not. It's just not all equally helpful. So, there you go. Alrighty. Alrighty. But when we come to... Um, okay, anyway. So, chapter, cha chapter 28 is this woe to the leaders of the Israelites, of the Jews. And... As I said, they have been bad shepherds by and large. Most of the kings of the two kingdoms have been poor kings. Not poor administrators. Not poor warriors. That God doesn't care about that. They have been poor at leading the people toward God and instead have led the way often towards importing lots of pagan gods and goddesses. And when you read sections of the Old Testament, you hear about Asherah poles and Ashtaroth and Baal and stuff. Those are all these pagan, local Canaanite pagan gods and goddesses. And the kings, the leaders have been poor kings in that regard. But look at chapter 28, verse 13. Where, where God is beginning to give them advice <laughs> about where, 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 they go, where they go wrong with so much of this. Verse 13 in chapter 28. You want to put that in there, Patty? I just did because we just had three or four new people. 28, 13. Okay. So then the word of Yahweh to them will become... Okay, so what, let me just explain that beginning. God is concerned about how the Word of God comes to be seen, comes to be used, right? Will the leaders help open up the pages and help people understand what God is saying to them or not? That's one reason I don't want you to get lost in the book of Isaiah because it would be easy to get lost in all of the endless chapters about destruction if, if you don't have somebody like me in this case, to help you see that there's always restoration at the end of that. Okay, so, verse 13. So then, God says, the word of Yahweh to them will become, do this, do that, a roof for this, a roof for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backward, they'll be injured and snared and captured. In other words, it's speaking against legalism. It, 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 it's, it's very tempting to take the Bible and turn it into all these lists of all these things we must do and must not do. And you know what, friends? If God wanted us to have a great big binder filled with the lists of all the things that we must do and must not do, God would have given us that. But wisely, God did not give us that. God gave us this book, that's this, this collection of writings that's largely filled with stories. 
from which we can step into the stories and try to understand and imagine and discern what a life lived in God's way looks like. But it's so tempting to just turn it into, because people like rules. Religions filled with rules tend to be very popular. Verse 14, Therefore hear the word of Yahweh, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. Now let me help you with that. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to insert a name here. You boast, we have entered into an agreement with Egypt. With Egypt, we have made an agreement. Well, that's not God's way. There's nothing wrong with the agreement with Egypt in and of itself, except that they have abandoned God and chosen that as the path of their salvation. And it's not what God wants. So now they say, ah, we've entered into a covenant with Egypt. With, the, with um, Egypt, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it's not going to touch us now, baby, for we have made a lie that Egypt can protect us from all things. We have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with pa panic. I will make justice the measuring line. I will make righteousness the plumb line. You know what a plumb is. A plumb is a weight on a string used to make sure buildings are straight and because its gravity just pulls the whole thing straight down. I will make justice the measuring line. I will make righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away your refuge. The lie, right? The lie. What's the lie? That you don't need God. The lie. And water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you're going to be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it's going to carry you away. Morning after morning, today, by day, by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. Your bed is too short to stretch out on. The blanket too narrow to wrap around you. These agreements you're making, come back to me. That, that, that's the way to hear this. God pleading with the people, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. You might think you're being all clever the way you're doing this, but you know what? Your bed is short sheeted and your blanket is too narrow. That's so funny. It is. That is that, that funny. That's why we'll, we'll stop there. But yeah. So, Patty, I have a question. So, when you went went to camp yes. with some friends, were you refused to eat spam? Yes. True. Yes. Okay. So, do girls at camp short sheet beds? Um, I went to camp for two years in a row, and there were really ugly, gross beds. There were no sheets. We all brought our own sleeping bag, and we slept in a sleeping bag on top of the mattress. After sweating all day long. Yes. <laughs> in the summertime. Yes. Wow. Did you did you 
What did you do about bugs? Did you like crawl down inside your bag oh, and zip it up? Oh, you know me. You know me. Wow. I was in there. It was the good thing. It was in very upstate New York. Yeah, so it was cooler. Uh, area called Mount <laughs> Tremper, and it, in the evenings it was freezing. You know, maybe in the fifties to lower sixties. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, guys at camp do occasionally short short sheet somebody. It's pretty funny when it happens. Anyway, yeah, you see the Bible. It's just filled with all these wonderful metaphors and analogies, and people keep wanting to flatten it all. They want to make it too literal. It's not literal. Most of it's not literal, for goodness sakes. It's these metaphors and analogies that are just amazing. Who would think that you would run into a metaphor about short sheeting <laughs> and a a blanket that's too small. The bed is too short to stretch out on. I mean, that's just <laughs> and the blanket's funny. too narrow to wrap yourself up in. You're you're just you're on the wrong path, people. It's great. <laughs> I just think it's I just think it's fabulous. Myself. Okay. Okay. Let's see. All right. So that's chapter twenty-eight. Chap. You know, chapter twenty-eight is just. Um, all about these leaders of Ephraim and, and as well as some advice about how the people, how they can come back to God. So, on the heels of that, it's not surprising that we have a woe to David's city. That David's city is what city? The city of David. That the, right, it's yeah, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You know, a lot just to fill a little bit of the history in. Very tiny area of what yeah, Jerusalem Yeah, it's very became. small. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of shaped like a keyhole. Um, and uh, in Jesus's day, it's there, and it's at the southern end of the Temple Mount. But it's, in fact, you can see it today. Actually, there, there today there are there are roads going up each side of this little long, narrow, key-shaped piece of land, keyhole-shaped piece of land, and that's that's the ancient Jerusalem. What a lot of people don't realize is that Jerusalem was not founded by the Israelites. It wasn't founded by David. He captured it. I'm sorry. This is a reminder. It's okay, it's Betty. So he captured it from, from the Jebusites, another story told in the book of Samuel. So, um, but it would always be the center um, of Israel. And the reason is because... Uh, it was not just David's city, but it was where it was where the temple was built. It's where Solomon built the temple, on, and naturally, it was the weight of Israel was drawn to Jerusalem. Even when the northern tribes break off, their leader um, realizes that and wants to find a way to give the people something to worship other than the Lord God so that they won't want to, you know, to make up and start worshiping in Jerusalem again. Because he likes the fact that he's king of the ten northern tribes. So, okay, so chapter 29 is Woe to David City. It's another... Um, Oh, we'll drop in on one little piece just because we're here. Verse 13 of chapter 29, 29, 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Sounds very New Testament, doesn't it? 
Sounds like the, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. That's a lot of Jesus' point with his opponents. Hundreds of years later, that they don't, they don't get it. They, they make these rules up and they end up in a place where they say to Jesus, oh my gosh, you can't heal someone on Saturday. He's got to wait. Got to wait for Sunday. Really? That's crazy. That's crazy. Crazy. But that's where they, that's, that's where they ended up, you know. That's where they ended up. Verse 14, Therefore once more I, this is God, will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, because the wise are wise in the ways of the world. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish, because they're really, really smart about some things, but they're really, really stupid about God and faith in God. Aren't there, and don't we live in a world when lots of people you know, think that because you're a Christian, you have to park your brain at the door or something. It's just, it's just, it's just so ignorant. It drives me, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. And, um. You know what it remind that what? reminds me just a little bit of is that I know a lot of people who are online right now have heard you say this before, but you talk about back in the day, in the 50s, maybe 60s, and maybe prior to that, where everybody came to church because they had to. And that's what this almost reminds me of, that those who will come, you know, with their, come with their mouth and they'll honor me, they're there because they kind of have to they be. They want to sell cars on Monday. They have to be there. And it's yeah. not a thing yeah, where it's exactly. really coming from their heart. It's coming from the fear of the social being ostracized if they do not... Yeah, right. that, that's church. a point. It was a point driven home to me by two theologians, um, Will Willimon and Samley Harawas, in a little book, little volume called Resident Alien that they wrote, I don't know, 20 or 25 years ago, about the their belief that the decline of American Christianity by the numbers was going to prove to be a good thing. Because what American Christianity was losing by the numbers were all the people it didn't really matter to. They were just there because they were supposed to be there. And and there would be a lot of power when the church was made up largely of people who truly wanted to be there and wanted to come to know God and wanted to come to know Christ better. So, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that myself. So, anyway... So, let's see. So, that is um, chapter 29. 29. Chapter 30 is um, just woes upon a generalized notion of obstinate people. <laughs> so, again, it's just, it's just, it's just like, just like so much that we had. Um, if, you know, you can look down, if you're looking at an NIV, you can look down at verse 19 um, to uh, 26, and you'll see that it changes from poetry to, to prose um, as it's 
rendering this 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 vision um, of of a city who won't weep anymore because like we've seen a dozen times already in Isaiah you get the woes followed by the images of restoration all right so we're 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 going to go on just a little bit more woe to those who rely on Egypt because who are they supposed to rely on batty god there you go <laughs> Woe to those who rely on Egypt is the like the little section lead in this particular edition of the NIV that I have on, on my iPad here. It makes me chuckle. Woe to those who rely on Egypt because they should be relying upon God. It is just, it can be so difficult, you know, to live our lives in this world, making decisions, having common sense, making making smart choices, but always understanding that our, our faith and our trust must first rely upon God and that no matter what happens to us in this life, even death will not hold us, that we rely upon God. I was reading, it was like somebody's Twitter or something about the fact that most people, a lot of people have very mixed up or ideas about eschatology, which is the study of last things. And what that does is it robs them of so much Christian hope. They end up thinking all that matters is this 70 or 80 or 90 years that we have right now. And the biblical view is, well, you have this 70 or 80 or 90 years we ha you have right now. But there is vastly more to your existence that you should never lose sight of. And you should never let anything drive you away from your commitment to God, the one who is giving you this vastly larger existence. But it is, it is a challenge. And so verse 31, you know, woe to those who rely on Egypt is how... <laughs> Verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from Yahweh. I can almost picture, I can almost picture Isaiah standing on a street corner, you know, dressed in, you know, very humble clothing, talking, hand in the air, finger pointing, as he is calling the people. What's he doing? He's calling the people back to God. That's what he does. That That's that's the job of a prophet. Um, so, first third, chapter 32. The kingdom of righteousness is the section heading that I have in my Bible. Your Bible might have something a little bit different. Um, and now, from the woes, you come to a different portrait. This is a portrait of a kingdom in, that is in which righteousness and justice flourish. 32.1, see, a king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter 
from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart, the heart that understands that God is God and we're not, will know and understand and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected, for they are not, these are people who don't put their faith in God. For fools speak folly, their hearts are bent on evil, they practice ungodliness, they spread error concerning Yahweh. They lie about God. They don't put the time in to trying to understand the scriptures, to come to know God. I've said more than a few times, that's Christopher Hitchens' mistake. Some of you are probably familiar with him. He wrote the book, God is Not Great. I read his book. I just didn't think, the man's smart, but he just didn't put enough time into really striving to, to, to read the Old Testament well and see what kind of God you really meet across the Old Testament coming to us from millennia ago. Okay, so that's um, that's what chapter 32 is. So 33 uh, um, is about God being a help to Israel, as we've encountered many times before. Look at verse, verse, um, verse 5 in chapter 33. Yahweh is exalted. For he dwells on high. He will fill Zion, that's that word that symbolizes Jerusalem and hence Israel, with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times. We have a hymn about, right? And then, well, there's a contemporary one about he is exalted on high. Yeah, I'm thinking of the sure foundation. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of the more modern one. But... Oh, I'm an old guy. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord, understanding who God, that God is God, we are not, and approaching God in that way with respect and awe, that's the key to this treasure. Okay? Um, So, verse 34, where are we back to now? Back to the woes against the nations. Judgment against the Chapter nations. 34. Chapter 34. Chapter 34. Judgment against the nations. Um, so, all through Isaiah, if you just sit down, and this might be helpful, and I know the section headings in your Bible are not part of the scripture, but the people who put them together generally have a pretty good idea about how to break it up They've spent time with it. All of us need help in bringing some structure to the oracles of the prophets and just kind of go through and you'll see that it's woes and judgment and then restoration and help and woes and judgment and restoration and help. Um, that's, it's this repetitive, this repetitive nature of it until you finally come to chapter 30. We're going to end right here. When we come back next week, we're going to sing about the joy of the redeemed. We're going to, with the, chapter 35 is a very joyful, uplifting, 
um, poem that will be a suitable introduction then to arrive at chapter 36 when we get to more narrative about Isaiah. So, Miss Patty. You did it. 23 to 34 today. Andy Gibson, <laughs> you said it couldn't be done. Is Andy online? Is <laughs> yes. He, he, yeah, see? Well, you know, it's just... When there's a will... There we go. When there's a will, there's <laughs> a way. And I just invite anyone... You're Now I think maybe you have a little bit of, of orientation to these chapters to go back and sit down with your Bible and look through them and then dive in. Take the helicopter down, dive in, read some passages, and you'll see... Judgment, restoration, judgment, restoration, judgment, praise, judgment, help, judgment, 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 restoration. <laughs> That's how it kind of goes. <laughs> oh, okay, man. I see there's a pattern here. <laughs> All right. All right, Patty. So thank you, everybody um, who was out there today. Um, appreciate you all being there. Yes, and, always. Um, for those of you who come on Tuesday, we look forward to seeing you tomorrow. And for those who ever haven't come but would like to come, we're now meeting back again in Pirro Hall at 12 o'clock. And we're a fun bunch. We're a fun bunch. Bring we, lunch. We've had uh, almost 60 people the last two weeks, plus the number online. And um, I would advise, honestly, I'm not just saying this, get there by 1245 because the table's... They fill up really We're going to have fast. more tomorrow. Yeah, okay. because we're going to be set up for the, uh, whatever the thing is the next day. Oh, okay. There'll be more tables and chairs. That'd be but good. But a lot of people like visiting. They do. Meeting they do. people. They do. Fellowshipping. That's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. anyway, hope to see you tomorrow. Those who can't join us in person, as always, we will be on Facebook Live, and you can comment and put prayer requests or, or anything else. And just Patty like will you be with the moderator. In person. And oh. you're a fine moderator Oh, dear. a fine moderator. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Have Bye. a great afternoon. I'm going to just close us in prayer. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this beautiful day today. We thank you, God, for this time to study your word together. We thank you, God, for this group who has gathered together for a very long time. And we are so grateful, God, for the technology to be able to do this. We pray, God, for ourselves today. We pray for our family and our friends. And we pray, God... We pray not only for good health, Lord, and for you to keep us safe, but we pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment to help us make good choices, Lord, every day in all areas of our life. We need it. We need your help. We need your guidance. Sometimes we don't ask for it, and that's usually when we regret it. So I'm just asking, Lord, to please help us to um, always remember, God, to keep you out front and center and to pray about important issues and areas of our life. I do want to pray God today for our friend Sharon Kerr. Sharon has been online with us like this and in person for years and Sharon um, has to have a, a cancerous tumor removed on one of her kidneys and she was finally, finally given the date for surgery which is May 19th and that may seem like a long time away but both she and Bob are really, really comforted by the prayers. So we're going to just keep praying for the surgery, for her quick healing, for a complete and total healing from her cancer. And Lord, for any other joys and concerns that might be in this group today, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lift those up to you, God, right now.
All this we pray in the great and glorious name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Hopefully see you tomorrow.